Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back. We are going to talk about a topic near and dear to my heart today. Actually, I say that because it's something that I've just been thinking about a lot, Riley. I have, I've been struggling myself with I think I just eat too much. And so today we're going to talk about fasting and and we're going to expand the conversation from fasting to eating less to not only fasting from food, but from other things. And I think this is going to be an interesting conversation that, that sort of expands the concept of fasting beyond what we're used to talking about. Yeah, I think what we're going to get into that will be maybe more fascinating for people that are already familiar with perhaps the health benefits or the doctrinal application of fasting from food is this idea that fasting from other desires, needs, or wants might offer the same benefits. And it's a way for people to practice the principle and derive the benefit from really what, what the intent is, is, is that, you know, we come to understand what are truly needs, what are truly wants. And as a result of that, it turns our attention and perhaps intention away from just this restriction of food to perhaps those who are less fortunate, perhaps our own um, desires and gratifications and satisfactions and kind of where our different levels of all those are. So for instance, you know, I'm someone like you who struggles with food fasting because I have low blood sugar when I I don't eat. And I mean, I've had several instances where I get up too fast during fasting and I just pass out on the ground for a couple seconds, just black out. So it's difficult for me and it always has been. But finding where that level is, where I'm still feeling like I'm restricting some of those, those corporal urges but at the same time, not, you know, risking hitting my head on the furniture, for instance, you know, like it, it's a, it's a means to finding out where my body is capable of sustaining, you know, good levels, but also feeling that restriction and what the impacts and benefits might, might be for me. Yeah, I know what you mean. You know, my blood sugar drops down as low as 40 for people who know what that means, my doctor told me I shouldn't fast. She told me I could pass out driving my car and kill myself if I'm if I'm not careful about, you know, getting making sure that I keep my blood sugar up and keep it even. But so that just means that this idea of the once a month fasting from however many meals or whatever, that doesn't that's not something I can participate in, but that's left me with the feeling that, you know, that doesn't mean I can't do other forms of fasting. And so when I say this topic is near and dear to my heart, again, it's something I've been thinking about lately uh, in terms of my own potential spiritual benefit and in terms of, 
again, I feel like I'm just overeating. I actually, once in a while, I, I alter my diet and sometimes I go to extremes. I went vegan for a couple years and, you know, I just really didn't feel the benefit that I was expecting. I, I, I always joke. I'm only half joking. I feel like I'm a fat vegan and that's not even supposed to be possible. So I feel like maybe, you know, I didn't have enough actual plants. Maybe I had too many carbs. But more than anything, I just feel like I just, it's portions, you know? And so there's, there's a wider conversation here that that's health, that's part of it. But then there's also the idea that if you're not taking time enough away from food and away from whatever the, the, whatever the, the, the fleshly appetites are, then you're missing something in terms of contemplation, right? That's what we're here to talk about is contemplation, which is noticing. And especially in particular, obviously, our context is in noticing and experiencing the presence of God, the divine presence. Yeah, and I love that you use that phrase, the fleshly appetites, because really that's where we want to broaden the conversation too. So fasting and the conversation we want to have is really to be more of a holistic and encompassing view where we include all of the fleshly appetites. And so that that can include, you know, all sensual desires. It can include our need for and desire for just comfort in any way that we might derive it. And by experiencing sort of that that restricted level of comfort or a lack of comfort, it it's supposedly, or we hope, it would bring awareness not only to our own bare minimal needs, but also to the, the situations of those who are lacking. And I think that's one of the core benefits of fasting, generally speaking, is that it's supposed to call your mind to the the lack of provision that others are currently experiencing. And and by relating to them in their circumstances, you might begin to see them in their need and feel a desire to reach out and be of service to them. So fasting from food, as kind of the most basic example, should call to mind for you that there's many people throughout the world who don't have the bare caloric minimum intake on a daily basis, and they just live in a constant state of poverty. I think that should be at least one of the benefits of fasting is to enliven within us the sense of compassion and a desire to act upon that compassion uh, for the benefit of our fellow humans. I love that, Riley. You know, I think in, in a religious context, when it comes to fasting in a religious context, that's really one of the the potential benefits and that's one of the intended benefits. And we can get into the checklist gospel and you know, abstain from however many meals and write the check without actually contemplating, without actually experiencing. I always tell my kids when it comes to fasting that if if you're not, I've always said, if you're not praying, you're not fasting, you're just going hungry. I think I would expand this conversation with my kids after our conversation together today to have them really in, have the intent in their hearts to look to that experience, right, of what it means to go hungry, what it means to do without that physical sustenance. And another thing that I love that you said is I'm just glad you brought up comfort because another for me personally, another thing that I've dealt with is in addition to maybe overeating, I shouldn't say maybe, in addition to overeating, it's 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 the reason why. Why am I overeating? So sometimes I'm eating, not just overeating in terms of when I sit down at a meal, but just always looking for something in between meals. I think I'm just craving something that can't actually be found in food. And, and I think this is something that 
that people do. I don't think I'm the only one. And so you're looking to fill that hole and you fill it with food. And then, well, now my, my clothes don't fit. <laughs> and that hole's still not filled. I absolutely love, I love that perspective because I think that, that starts to bring in the psychology of it. And not only the reason behind fasting, but really what is it ab- about these desires that makes fasting from them so important for us to do and, and to not restrict it to just foods because there are so many desires or even just needs and wants. Um, and, you know, we can, we can bring it back to the level of necessities. Like we need clothing, for instance. We need food and water. We, those are needs. But when we take even those basic needs to excess, they become very dangerous for us. And that's where addictions form and, and all that kind of that kind of thing. So I, I love that you brought that up because I think what many people are doing, not just with food, but with with money and things, with with sex, with a lot of other things that are basic survival instincts, they're taking them to excess and it's forming uh, addictions. And so that's possibly one of the huge psychological benefits of fasting, again, from that all-encompassing holistic point of view that, that fasting could provide for us is to help us realize where our needs have turned into excess. I think that's really also the core of, for instance, you hear about the seven deadly sins in Catholicism. Each one of those has its root in in basic survival instincts or, you know, basic needs, not just not just excesses. So with sleep, the excess of sleep becomes sloth. The excess of, of sex becomes lust. The excess of eating food becomes gluttony and so forth. And so all of them are just an expansion of basic survival instincts gone way overboard. Yeah, you know, it's all of these, all of these appetites are part of human nature and they're not bad, right? These are not things that that we shouldn't have. What we're talking about here is the idea of moderation, right? It's just moderation because there's there's of course there's a sexual appetite. There's this attraction that we have and this is part of the procreation of the species and it's part of being fruitful and multiplying, right? But this can go too far. Or it can be there's also the the vice of deficiency as well as the vice of excess. And so, of course, you know, in Catholic uh, theology and philosophical theology, the theologians like St. Thomas Aquinas, they're aware of Aristotle's work. And this is what Aristotle taught in his Nicomachean Ethics, right? This idea that there's this golden mean. So that even people who haven't read or heard of Aristotle know about this, this idea of the golden mean of moderation, that, that things can be uh, taken in excess, that they can be in deficiency, but that there's this sweet spot, right? So we have to learn to to be able to control our desires, because if we don't control our desires, they'll control us. And if they control us, we'll never be satisfied. And if we're never satisfied, we'll never be happy. You can't be happy without being satisfied. So really at the core of all this are these, again, fleshly appetites, the appetites of the flesh that are going to keep us in check in some sense if we don't keep them in check. So let's get a little bit specific, if you don't mind, Christopher. Like in past episodes, maybe three or four ago, when we were talking, and this has been happening on an ongoing basis, we've been into Al-Ghazali lately. But one of the things you mentioned are these these categories of appetites. And one of them that you brought up was concupiscence. Tell us a little bit about what that one means again. Well, concupiscence, if you look it up in a dictionary today, 
it it specifies that it's about sexual desire but it doesn't have to be sexual desire it can be it can be more widely understood and and earlier you know it, it has changed meaning earlier it was a little more broadly understood but again there are these there's these there are these desires that have to do with oftentimes they do have to do with sexual desire right because again they're what lead to procreation and this is a natural desire and it's good there's nothing wrong with it the problem is when concupiscence isn't kept in check then again it can control us and it can become a problem for us right uh, and this manifests itself in, in today's world it's 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 a huge problem with people who have uh, addiction with pornography and people who have um and and when i say addiction right you you're talking about a level of it's really getting in the way of not just of it's a it's a big enough problem if it's getting in the way of, of your relationship with God. I don't mean to to belittle that in any way, and that can be a problem that's not at the level of addiction. So that's one level of conversation. Another level of conversation is at the level of addiction where you're not functional as a human being. And so these are on a scale, right? And and I don't mean to make any slippery slope arguments, but you can you can move up and down that scale. And what we want to do is move up that scale to a place of moderation where we're not going to become monks or become celibate because that's not part of our religion, but that we are not going to become slaves to the flesh either. So if you were taking uh, concupiscence as a, as a wider term and you say, you know, kind of specifically it's, it, in the past it's referred to the sexual desire, but does it not only does it not also refer to like the belly, that appetite of the belly, right? It's the belly, the sexual organs. That that that's where it's been represented, right? Absolutely. You know, Al Ghazali, and again, I'm I'm reading a lot of Al Ghazali. I'm translating Al Ghazali. I'm reading deeply into the text. I'm translating. I'm reading around it so that I can better understand his ideas. And so I'm spending a lot of time with him. And in one of the in, in one of the chapters of The Alchemy of Happiness, he deals with the lusts of the stomach and of the sexual organs. And he points out that at the basis of sexual desire or concupiscence in that sense is the, uh, the lust of the sexual organs, right, is the lust of the stomach. Because if you're, if you're really actually going hungry, you don't actually have sexual desire. Does that make sense? If you're really going hungry. So one of the ways that you can tame the one is through the other, right? You can tame the sexual desire by taming the lusts of the stomach. So he thinks, Al-Ghazali says, that all all of the lusts of the flesh come down to the stomach. And he points out, and this is a really interesting argument, he says, look, if you're not, again, satisfied in the stomach, you're not going to be looking for this other satisfaction of the sexual organs. And he says all of these things, when it comes to the stomach and satisfying those desires, it takes money. And so, because you need money, now that's going to bring your focus into that, and now you have to go and, and, and he's, he, he just goes on to say that ultimately, this leads to all of the other, you know, pride, envy, jealousy, uh, and all the kinds of things that, that sometimes when we're over preoccupied with money, that all these other lusts come into play, but they all start, he says, with the appetites of the stomach. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, I think the stomach in that sense just becomes a metaphor for for all of those, um, whether they're necessities or they're or they're just desires or wants, regardless, 
any of those taken to excess can become what has been referred to in the past as sinful, right? Uh, an excess. And so I think that's a good representative spot to start is, is referring to concup- concup- concupiscence as a, as a desire of the stomach to fill some hole or need. It occurs to me, Riley, that we might use a synonym for concupiscence, whether we continue to say concupiscence or not. And this is something that I've struggled with in making a translation of the Arabic recension of the alchemy of happiness into English, is that concupiscence and irascibility, that are these two things that that Al-Ghazali is dealing with, really are best called by those names, and yet they're not really familiar terms, right? So what is concupiscence? This is this is the, the possibility or the capacity for lust. So it's not lust necessarily. Excess of desire, right? Or, or taking things to excess. Well, it's not lust necessarily, but it's the capacity for that kind of desire, right? That we have the capacity within us. So there can be, there can be concupiscence in a child. A child does not have sexual desires necessarily, but has the capacity for it. So there's this phrase in, in Hebrew, in Jewish theology, called yetzerchara, and it means the evil inclination. Now, it doesn't mean that someone will actually take that inclination to its, to its end, but it's almost like we've got the light of Christ, which provides a certain level of inspiration, and then you've got the yetzerchara, and, and it's kind of like the opposite or balancing um, force, which is the evil inclination. And we kind of stand in the middle where we can choose one or the other, exercise our agency to choose uh, to go one direction or the other. Yeah, you know, there's not really a concept. I think there's a little bit of the idea of original sin in that concept. There's not really a concept of original sin in the Islamic tradition. And Al-Ghazali being a philosophical theologian, having been influenced also by Aristotle, isn't going to think in those exact terms. Well, the Jews don't believe in original sin either. And so for them, it's... It's just the potential. Like you were saying earlier about um, Al-Ghazali's idea of concupiscence being the potential. It's not that we necessarily have that as our fate. It's just that the potential is there in either direction. Right. And you know what? Scratch original sin because we're not talking. I'm I'm talking about, I said original sin, but I'm really thinking of this idea of the, of the, that man is in his essence evil, right? That, that, that there's at least this potential for evil as part of the, uh, the essence of the human being. And I think that's something that, at least for Al-Ghazali, he would say is part of the, the ego self. But there's another part of us that's, our, that's at our core, that comes from God and that, that remains close to God, and that, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, may even return to God each night while we sleep for oh, just, you know, from uh, from fatigue from being in the world, right? Because it doesn't belong here. This is not its natural place. Whereas the, whereas the flesh is, is earthy and, and belongs here more, right? But then there's irascibility. And irascibility, again, it's not anger, just like concupiscence isn't lust, but it's the potential to become angry. And, and when I say angry, I'll give you an example. Irascibility is what makes it possible, it's angerability. So it's, it's, and that's a made up word, right? But it's, it would, it's what would make you be, become upset if you saw someone steal an old lady's purse. So it's not a bad thing necessarily, but of course, if it's, if it doesn't, if it's not kept in check, then you can have anger issues too. And I've struggled with anger myself. 
I know what that's like. And so, again, this is one of those episodes in particular for me, Riley, that really, when I, as I come to the table, so to speak, to record this podcast, I come with anxiety because I know we said in the beginning, we have a, an introduction that says, we're not your guru, we're not experts, we are practicants in some sense, we're learning, and we hope that we're, we're on a journey together, Riley and I are, you and I are, Riley, we hope that you can, you'll come on this journey with us too. But again, remembering that we're not your guru, we're not experts. I struggle with with lust. I struggle with with um, with concupiscence, with irascibility, with anger issues, with the lusts of the stomach and the sexual organs. All of this is a part of my experience as a human being, and maybe even more than you, Riley, and maybe even more than our listeners. And so I come to this with that the anxiety of the imposter syndrome which I knew would come up eventually if it weren't there already in the beginning uh, in, in recording this podcast with you, as I mentioned to Shiloh when he asked me to do this. So there's all of that for me. And so yet, and that's why actually I think this is such an important conversation for me and maybe for you and for our listeners. So let's introduce this this topic from the gospel perspective. I mean, we've kind of talked about it as a practical um, principle, one that can help us to identify suffering outside of ourselves, to find our own limits within, and to help us identify where our weaknesses are in terms of uh, taking our, our needs and natural desires to excess. But there's this phrase that, that Jesus used that's, that's interesting, where he says, whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. So I'm going to say the full in context, give you the full uh, discourse from Christ. And it's, it's not a discourse in length. It's pretty short. But he says, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Here's a key part. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? And I think what he's talking about here is at the root of, of our discussion. And that is, you know, you can acquire, 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 and consume, consume, consume. But what are you advantaged if you gain all of that stuff and in the process lose the core of who you are as a human? Because we are not the sum of our possessions and our, our consumption and our desires. We, those are just, those are just uh, inclinations. And they're natural but we are not those things. At the core of ourselves, denying us, denying ourselves of all those things helped, helps to reveal who we truly are at our base. Right, and we're not the ego self that, does, that has those desires and that wants all those things either. Right. We're something, we're something more than that. Something at the core of us is divine and needs none of those things. Now, in our earthly existence, in our in our experience in the flesh, we have certain needs. The question is, can we distinguish between wants and needs? And that's where you—that's something you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that I think we need to talk about. The other thing is, you know, we, we've said we want to talk about the idea of other things besides, and, and this is something you just brought up, right? Besides just food and sex, there are all kinds of other things. And I've actually had my successes too, Riley, as you know, 
for me, Facebook and the, the time suck that it is it was, a, was a problem, as it may be for others. And I gave it up. I just quit. And that was, that was a huge victory for me. And I've gotten so much time out of it. And I've spent that time reading instead. And I've learned so much. And so that's been a huge victory for me. And I think that oftentimes when it comes to something like Facebook, and, and I really should say not just Facebook, right, but social media in general and other media too, right? Because it can be YouTube, it can be, um, and, and there can be benefits too, right? Again, there's nothing wrong with YouTube. I watch so many, I've learned so much on YouTube. I've watched lectures. I've learned how to uh, shoot a handgun better. I was pretty good with a rifle. I learned from an expert how to fire a handgun. You know, so many things. You can learn so many things from YouTube, but you can also waste a lot of time. And to me, the thing that's that's the biggest danger in, in, the, in the media and in the, these things that we access through the apps, and especially when they're right in our pocket and with us all the time, and we reach to them where we're not even able to be alone with ourselves or with God, because God is always there whether we're aware of him or not, it is just that we don't realize that we're doing it that we're not really aware of how much time we spend doing it, or even that we're doing it without thinking, right? So it's unintentional. It's compulsive in some sense. And so that's the issue. I'm not saying that the issue is is the thing itself, but it's the compulsive nature of the use of it and the idea that we're not balancing our consumption with our production or our giving with our taking is another way to think about that. What do you think about that, Riley? I love it. And I think uh, that points to the example, again, of Jesus. He really exemplified this distinct taking, uh, trying to distinguish between needs and wants during his 40-day fast. I mean, it was clear that food and water are a need. That, that's clear. But by going through the 40-day fast, he was presented with three options for relieving his suffering. And all three of those options were distinguished from the thing he was fasting from in that they were wants or desires. They were the excess of those natural inclinations that we all have. And and so when Satan comes along and says, you know, he takes him to the top of a pinnacle and says, throw yourself off and the angels will will come in, swoop in and save you um, because God would never let his son, you know, be dashed upon the rocks below or whatever. What is he? What is he trying to gratify within Christ? It's the difference between a need and a want. He's saying, "I will relieve your your need by trying to fill that hole with a want of of pride." You know that God would can't come in and and send a legion of angels to save me or whatever, um, or say to this rock, "Be made bread." Is kind of that same thing. It's an exhibition of his power rather than, you know, just going down to the market that I'm sure he was close enough to, he could have bought a loaf of bread. So it's, he's trying to appeal to gratification of, of wants versus needs. It would be very easy for Christ to fill his own need. But by going through this fast, it revealed the difference between a need and a want. It's interesting because you reminded me in, in mentioning power that and I knew in the back of my mind that I hadn't gone all the way with the analogy or the explanation that that Al Ghazali gave for how the lust of the stomach leads to all the other sins, all the other excesses. Right, power is one of them, 
Because again, if you're looking for money, then now you're looking at antagonism in some sense, especially if you want more, right? If you want more, well, what does more mean? More than someone else, right? There becomes this zero-sum game. There becomes antagonism. There becomes competition in some sense, in a sense that is not healthy for human relations, right? For, for your, for your, because there's more to, to life than just things, right? And especially when it comes to people, right? A lot of times we're so focused on things that we forget to focus on the people around us. And this is another thing about the, about the screen time, right? Is that we are ignoring the people right around us, not just God, but the people right around us. And again, it's, it's bad enough to ignore God, but then there's the people that are around us that are, that are flesh and bone. And, and a lot of times they're our own flesh, our own family, right? And so if we can't even notice the people around us, how are we to notice God? And he's there. He really is. He's there in every moment, but we're not aware. And so here I am, to personalize this, here I am hungering for God and not even aware of it because I've, I've accustomed myself to at least trying to trying to fill that hole. You can't fill it with food because it's a hunger for God. And I'm filling it with food. And so this is a conversation that really hits home for me. Is again, it's been on my mind. Ugh, how can I how can I notice God if I'm not paying attention to so it's it's really it's a matter of just stopping, right? And just taking the time to think, to contemplate, right? What's really going on with me? And, and, and I've, I've mentioned before how powerful asking questions is. If I just ask, I'm reminding myself, if I could just stop and ask, what is it I really desire? What's really at the root of this desire? That might make a big difference. I'm sure it would. That's such a great question. I, I love that because it, it really roots, it, it puts at the root of all of our desire the most basic and Perhaps the strongest desire is a desire for connection with God. And by satiating ourselves, whether it's with money or uh, food or sex or whatever, we, we're basically removing or reducing the desire for communion with God. That's an interesting perspective that I hadn't thought of, and I really like the way you couched that conversation because it opens up the possibility of the great mystics, thinkers, and religious leaders of all time Many of them have gone to fasting as a means for communion with God. And this maybe helps us understand why. And it helps us be open to the possibility of that for ourselves, of fasting in some sense, not necessarily skipping meals, maybe just eating less, maybe just being more mindful about when and what we eat and how much. And to show that that, we don't have to become hermits or live in a monastery or become monks, or celibate, just to notice, just to contemplate, to notice how much, when, and, and, and why. To ask ourselves, what is at the bottom of all this? And, and by the way, to take the, the possibility that the answer is your desire for God, right? That's a, really at the bottom of all of this, and how you really cannot satisfy that craving for the divine presence in your life through any other means but by seeking the actual presence of God. So what you're setting up for me anyway is kind of a nice discussion about at what point, and you talked about a sweet spot earlier, 
and how to identify it. And fasting is a tool for helping us to identify that sweet spot where we've satisfied the need, but we haven't taken it to excess. And so our desire for communion with God is still alive. It hasn't been replaced with some addictive um, personality or, or compulsive uh, or satisfaction, right? It, or compulsive satisfaction of, of, a, of a excess versus just satisfying that basic need. And that's kind of the sweet spot. And so what this sets up for me, and you might like this conversation because you're a big classicist. If you look at the Epicureans and the Stoics, at least in most people's mind, they kind of represent two polar opposites. One is like, you know, being bare bones, ascetic, you know, and then the other one is is kind of like indulging in all of the of the beauty and wonder and fruits of life and like taking it even to excess, even though that isn't part of the philosophy itself. And there is a lot of overlap, surprisingly, between Epicureans and, and Stoics. But the, the, the confluence for both of these philosophies seems to be this Latin phrase, non multa sed multum. Are you familiar with that phrase? Yes. Not many, but much. So it's it's kind of the... the uh, discourse, or, or, or not the discourse, but like the um, the debate between quantity and quality. Yeah. I was mentioning to you, Riley, before we hit record here today, how, you know, we're a new podcast. Uh, this podcast is a new podcast. We don't, we don't have a lot of listeners. We don't have a lot of comments. But the comments that we get are just high quality comments, you know, whether it's whether it's the appreciation that we get, whether it's the insights that people get that that then when they share them, give us further insights, we really appreciate those comments. And and the quality of them is so high that the that the quantity just is you know, sometimes we, we become so preoccupied with quantity. And for me, this this actual this recording this podcast has been an exercise from the start in keeping the ego self in check. You and I have seldom looked at how many listeners do we have or how many um, downloads of this or that episode. Once in a while, we're curious, we ask, we look into it, but usually we don't. And that's not what this podcast is about. It's about us sharing our journey. It's about those listeners who are sharing in the journey with us and the insights that they get that they're sharing back with us and that they've just been priceless. Yeah, you're referencing a comment that we received uh, about the last show that was released, which maybe now isn't the time to go into specifics on that, but really what we're interested in more than anything is transformation. That's, that's at the heart of contemplation, is what, what can this do for us? And so when we're having this conversation about fasting, I think that's what we're most interested in is what is the transformative power of fasting as a principle, not necessarily as a practice? And I mean, I, I, I wholly endorse the practice, don't get me wrong, but as a principle, when we em embrace fasting from a holistic, all-encompassing uh, point of view, what can fasting do for us on a transformative level to either bring us closer to God in communion or help us realize full spiritual potential? Well, and of course, we've dealt with the idea that contemplation and action go hand in hand, right? So obviously, we're not interested in a principle for the sake of the principle. We want to put it into action. That's where the transformation happens, right? Where the rubber meets the road. But I also want to go back to a question you brought up. At least I thought you were 
I thought you were going to ask this question if you didn't actually ask it, Riley. And that is, how do we determine what is enough? What does that golden mean? And that's such a great question. And, and it's actually one of the critiques against Aristotle, who was really the one who expounded this idea originally, that as far as we know, right, that we have uh, his book, The Nicomachean Ethics. And one of the critiques against Aristotle is he can't give you an actual answer for that question, meaning he can't tell you the exact amount. And so some people find that that's a weakness in his idea. But it's interesting to me because I think if I show you an example, you'll see why he doesn't try to do that. So let's say we want to know how much is too much to spend, right? You could spend too much and be profligate, or you could spend too little and be stingy, but you could spend just the right amount. So how do I know what's too much? Well, see, the reason Aristotle can't say this amount, X amount, is because it depends. It depends on how much you have, for example. So if I were to say to you, Riley, and I usually say this to, to classes, you know, university classes with 30 students. If I were to say, I'm ta- after class, I'm taking everybody out to lunch, that would be excessive for me. And I would probably get in big trouble with my wife. And yeah, th- th- that just would not work for me. But if Bill Gates would say, after this lecture, I'm taking all of you out to lunch, that would just not be a big deal at all. So it really depends on how much you have. And so how much is enough is something that you have to be able to gauge for yourself. It depends on, it depends on your own circumstances. And I, I say, trust yourself. Just ask the question and listen for the answer. And you'll get the right answer every time. Well, and experiment with it. And experiment with it, yeah. I think one of the, yeah, one of the things that you have to do with, with fasting when you're applying it as a, a broader principle is you actually just have to experiment with things. Um, if, if what you're going to do is fast from social media, put put a time on it and and see what feels right. If if it's if you find that it's something that appeals to your addictive personality, well, you know, try getting rid of it altogether and and see how that feels. If it's something where you've just noticed in your life that perhaps it's above that golden mean, whatever that sweet spot is for you. Try a 30-day fast or a 15-day fast. Um, And I think you can do that with anything. Apply fasting to anything that you seem to be taking to an excess and just see what it does for you. Because you might discover that there is this this minimum level of satiation that actually covers the, the need but still leaves open the desire for a communion with God. It doesn't outpace that most important uh, appetite or desire. Yeah, there's so many things you can do in between too, right, Riley? So you can maybe take the app off your phone. So now when you want to use social media, you have to actually go to your your desktop or your laptop, and it's not right there in your pocket, right? You can say uh, Facebook fast on Sunday, or maybe all of technology. There have been Sundays where I've said, you know what, no screens today. Today is all about no screens just being with people. And you know, there's Sundays that I, just yesterday I spent time watching lectures on on Joseph Smith and his translation projects. And that seems like a great idea for me for Sunday. And I did it with my family who are visiting. But there are other Sundays where I just say, you know what, no screens today. Let me bring up another aspect of fasting that maybe we haven't, maybe we've touched on it a little bit, but let me, let's call it, call it out more a little uh, explicitly. 
And that is the preparatory impact that fasting can have for us. So the example that I'm looking at is that Christ is, he, he kind of knows his fate. He's a rabble rouser and he knows what kind of trouble that will get him into. And he tells his apostles at multiple junctures throughout his ministry that, hey, I'm, I'm going to be crucified. And sometimes he says it explicitly and sometimes he says it, you know, by, by means of metaphor. But nevertheless, you know, he's going to be lifted up and he, he knows that that kind of pain and suffering is coming. And at one point, there's, there's this time when, when he says it to his, his uh, apostles and Peter says, heaven forbid that happen. You know, that, that, that's not going to happen to you. Before that happens, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen. And there's this very interesting rebuke where Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter Satan, essentially. And for me, that kind of relates it back to the 40-day fast. Because it was Satan who was trying to relieve Jesus of this suffering that he was going through physically by taking the suffering away. Whether it was, you know, tempting him to turn the, the rock into bread or having the legion of angels swoop in and save him, whatever that was. Or, or appealing to his desire for power by taking him up on the mountain and showing him all the, the, the people and, and kingdoms in front of him and how he could have all of that. Well, all of that's true. You know, if he truly was the son of God, he had the ability to not only relieve his suffering, but uh, to assume his kingship over all of these possessions and, and just put himself on one heck of a pedestal. And that was the appeal that Satan was making to him. And it's almost the same appeal that Peter's making to him. He's like, hey, let's, I can relieve your suffering. I'll protect you. I've got this sword. We, we're, we've got these people, you know, I mean, we just fed 5,000 people. They're loyal to us. Let's, let's rally the troops against, you know, whether it's Rome or, or, or the people who within their own faith were trying to, uh, you know, take him down, whatever the case was. And, and he says, get behind me, Satan. And I think what he's trying to say here is, I'm prepared for this. I did my 40-day fast as a way to prepare myself for the physical discomfort that was coming. And I'm prepared for it because I know the benefit of doing it is going to be great. Does that, does that ring true for you? Or is there any insight there that you want to... Well, sure. It's a spiritual, it's a spiritual preparation. So yes, fasting... Any, anything that we do that, that brings us closer to God, right, is going to, be, it's going to prepare us to return to God. We crave a return to God, and we, we get glimpses of it, and fasting can bring us closer to God, and then we get sucked back into life, right? We have to go to work, we have to do this, but again, are we working to live, or are we living to work? Are we working to have all these things that we don't need, you know, so we can impress people, so we can keep up with the Joneses, so we can have the latest version, or are we just trying to satisfy our needs so that we can continue in, in living our lives, in our families, and in learning, and in teaching our children, and in drawing closer to God, and in and thinking about those people again who have less than we do, who are wanting, who are needing. And you know, we have this unhealthy idea in our culture in America, that those people who are, who don't have, that they, they did it to themselves, that they brought it upon themselves. And this is not a compassionate attitude. Whether or not it's true, for me, is irrelevant. 
I don't think it's true, but it's irrelevant whether it's true. The point is, they're suffering. And and if it is true, by the way, I'm open to that. I have brought upon, I've brought all kinds of suffering upon myself, so I know that's possible. And yet, I didn't want the suffering. In some sense, I didn't know what I was doing or I wouldn't have done it. And there's a sense in which Socrates has to be right when he says that no one does wrong knowingly. A lot of times we think, oh, sure, he knows. Of course he knows. He knows better than that. Of course, he could have seen that if he did this, that this would follow. And yes, maybe he could articulate that and intellectualize it and write it down and tell you about it and even know it in some sense, but he doesn't really know it and do it anyway because nobody actually wants to bring suffering upon themselves. So in every decision that we make, wherever we're coming from, and that's another part of it, right, is who knows where the, where the people who are hurting, who, as we've said, hurt people, hurt people, right? The people who are hurting, we don't know why they're hurting. And, and so we don't know why they're hurting. It's because they're hurt that they hurt. And we don't know why, because we don't know them. We don't know their hearts. And it's easy for us to see our own hearts. And we can see that our intent is good, even when our actions are bad. God can see that in all of us. We can't see the intent of others' hearts, but we know from our own experience of ourselves that our, the best of intentions often fail us in our, we fail to, to actualize those intentions in our actions. And so our actions can bring us suffering, and we know this is possible for us, so of course it's possible for our fellow man. And the point is, once, that's, once this is all said and done, people are suffering. We're suffering. Others are suffering. And we can, we can share. We can share of what we have. We can share of our substance. If we can just notice that others are suffering, if we're not so wrapped up in ourselves, if we're not so wrapped up in getting more for ourselves, either or, right? We can notice the suffering of others and we can do something. Whatever small part we can play in alleviating that suffering is going to be a blessing, not only to the one who is suffering, but to, our, to ourselves, right? It's going to be, and it's going to, when I say ourselves, our souls, right? If we can overcome the ego self that's selfish, if we can extend ourselves and offer of our sustenance, uh, whether, we, whether we don't seek for things that we don't need so that we can provide others for what they need once we've satisfied our own needs, or whether we ourselves don't have enough and yet are willing to share of what we have. Either way, you don't have to have, we have the widow's might, right? We don't have to have a lot to share. And think about how much closer we could draw to God if we would be willing to, even as the widow, to give that might. It worked for her. It could work for you. Well, and there's, there's, that, there's that phrase in D&C where it says that there is enough in the earth. There's enough and to spare. And part of that um, is a recognition of our own exploitation. You know, I, it's interesting to me that Christ entered into his 40-day fast at the beginning of his ministry as, as a way to prepare him for what he would be doing throughout his ministry. So there, there's a couple different ways to suffer. There's the, the kind of suffering that comes from our own actions that, you know, we don't desire them, as you said before, but it's the natural consequence of our actions. And then there's kind of a self-imposed uh, suffering that, that comes from 
exercising discipline. And that's really what fasting is about. So when Christ goes into his 40-day fast, it's the latter. He, he's attempting to discipline his, his desires so that he can become more aware of those around him that are suffering and more aware of his own base needs. What, what is that sweet spot for him? What is the amount that he needs in order to sustain himself so that the excess can be used to help lift others? And there are many instances throughout the, the New Testament uh, where Christ and his disciples are in want, whether it's in want of food or shelter or whatever, and they're able to discipline themselves because they've, they've gone through this process of fasting. Very well put, Riley. Indeed. You know, the, the same example really exists with, as, as I mentioned before, other religions. I mean, when, when the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, goes into his, I guess it was a 49-day fast in his case, and he's assailed by Mara, which is, I guess you could call it the equivalent of Satan. It's not, but, you know, for the, for the purposes of this discussion, you could say that Mara is sort of like a devil figure. Well, we've, we've equated the serpent in the garden myth to Satan or the devil, right? We've conflated right. The, the two. And so it's the same. Mara is a serpent. And so you, yeah. could, you could make the same case. And he calls upon legions of, you know, whether it's evil spirits or whatever, the same way that Satan is said to do, to do in the scriptures. So it, it's sort of a cognate there. There's, there's some relevance. But nevertheless, the things that uh, Mara uh, assails Buddha with are, are very similar. You know, they're these lusts of the flesh. He, he has his daughters, you know, that are all very beautiful to come and try to tempt him through his sexual desires. He, you know, it's... It's the armies, you know, that Mara commands to come and try to destroy him. And, and uh, he, he, then he tries to appeal to his pride and, and, and saying, who's going to support you as, as in, your, in your discipline and power? And, and he just, you know, puts a finger on the earth and says, the, the earth testifies that what I'm doing is right. And anyway, it, it's, a, it's a sense of preparation for him through self-discipline for what he would then encounter throughout the world, which was all that suffering. And it's very difficult to relate to suffering if you have never suffered. And the core of, of Christ's atonement lies in his ability to succor us because he himself has been to the depths. And part of that, at least part, and probably the majority of the reason behind his 40-day fast was a preparation for relating to all of us as his brothers and sisters so that he could then succor us in our own sufferings. You know, Riley, to continue the, the theme of, you know, comparative religion, the comparative religious approach, and to bring Socrates back into this, you know, Mara, in addition to being a demon in Buddhism, is the goddess of death in Hinduism. And so, as Socrates said, philosophy is preparation for death. This way, this way of life, and what he means by philosophy is, as he says, as he says, the unexamined life is not worth living, right? So it's it's having this examined life, it's having this intentional life, it's having this contemplative life that is equivalent to what Socrates means by a philosophical life, right? The life of the philosopher is one of of intentional living and of preparation for death. So yes, fasting can be, in in this wider sense that we're talking about it 
can be a preparation not only for our life and uh, as it was for Jesus in his earthly ministry, for us to live intentionally and to have the greatest benefit that we can have and, and also provide the greatest benefit to others that we possibly can. It's also preparing us not only to, to know and experience God here and now, but to live with him again. It's preparing us for death. Ultimately, memento mori, right? We must die. And we all come from God, and we all return to him, and we don't want to return unprepared. So there's another scriptural example that I want to point out, and again, it's uh, from the life of Jesus. And there's there's this man who comes to <clears throat> to the apostles, and he's beset by some kind of a demon. And again, this demon can be a metaphor for psychological malady. It can be anything, right? But nevertheless, it's nevertheless it's beset this man, and he comes to the apostles seeking help. And they, by virtue of what they've been taught and and their their spiritual discipline, perhaps their priesthood, whatever, they they try to cast out this demon, and they're unable to do it. And Jesus comes along, and the the disciples say to him. You know, why aren't we able to cast out this demon? And Jesus says, this kind cometh not out, but by prayer and fasting. And I think, again, what this is doing is pointing us back to, again, that discipline that, and I'm not sure, maybe there's a double application here. I'm not sure whether that applies necessarily only to the apostles or to the subject. It it very well could be both or one or the other. I don't know. But uh, there's a lesson there to be learned about fasting and the many things that beset us, the, the temptations, the struggles, the afflictions or addictions, whatever they are, how beneficial the principle of fasting widely construed can be to our getting over or conquering those demons. Indeed. So hopefully this conversation that we've had, Riley, has opened up our minds to a wider sense of what fasting means and and has done so for you, the listener, too, and has brought to mind benefits beyond those perhaps previously considered to fasting. It has for me, and I, I think I'm I'm resolved to look at the various desires and needs in my life and the way I attempt to fill those holes to see if it's, first of all, is it even efficient? Is it working? Is, is the way I'm trying to fill some, some lack that I have with a thing or a, an activity or whatever, is it working? So maybe that's the first question I ask myself. And the next question I should ask myself is, have I even experimented with fasting in that way to see what my minimum required um, quantity is to to still enjoy the quality of life? I mean, is there is there a sweet spot for me in each category of desire or or appetite? So not only contemplation but contemplation and action. I love it. Well, Riley, I think this has been a good conversation. I, is there anything you'd like to add in closing? No, other than, again, an appeal to listeners, we, we'd love to hear from you. If there 
are ways in which this conversation has benefited you, please let us know. We would like to tailor much of our message towards those who it's benefiting the most and who are really paying attention and, and acting upon the things that they're learning. And if there are subjects that you would like us to tackle, we'd love to hear that. If there are experiences that you have that might be germane to our conversation, we'd love to hear those. So check us out on Apple, Stitcher, Google. Uh, we're in all the, the podcast providers. And you can provide feedback to us through the comments section on those or on our YouTube channel, uh, Latter-day Peace Studies. And you can also find us on Facebook and uh, Instagram, the Latter-day Peace Studies page. So it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Riley. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Riston. See you next week. <laughs>